Hey, dude. Yo. Um, we're talking. Um, and we're also live. How's the donut? I think people might be able to, I think they might hear you eating the donut, but I don't really care. They could probably hear me eating this donut. This is like cheat month. I haven't had a donut in almost a year. Really? Mm-hmm. Dude, I had, there was a guy, he doesn't drink coffee. And he was like, I work with him. And uh, I was like, you don't drink coffee? He's like, no. I was like, what the fuck? So I bought him. I went to Dunkin' Donuts one day. And I was like, oh, you want to, you know, he just needed to get out of the office. Just one of those busy days. Go out and so oh, what's that? I was like, oh, me and my, uh, one of my other lieutenant coworkers, we look at each other. We're like, yeah, you want to, yeah, get that for sure. I'm, I don't know how wired he was after that, but he mm-hmm. kind of an energetic guy already, but it was yeah, we basically got him like the highest caffeine content that we nice. that Dunkin' Donuts has. He's like, nice. yeah, I don't really drink coffee or caffeine. We're like, oh, okay, that's great. So we buy him the one thing that has like the most caffeine in it. But mm-hmm. um, wired, we'll see how I do after um, after two donuts. Yeah, after not having had a donut in forever. Dude, I know. I've been. I haven't. Well, I don't really delve into donuts too much. But I mean, it's still kind of like it's one of those cheat meal kind of things, you know, or like special occasion. Because totally. I don't really drink too, but it's just one of those things that. Well, I drink. But I drink on like a special occasion, you know. It depends. Depends on the circumstance. Yeah. Yeah, I figured doing a little podcast with you is a yeah. occasion for a donut. Dude, of course. <laughs> Multiple donuts, actually. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, dude, um, I didn't know if you wanted to potentially introduce yourself a little bit. You don't have to go into detail about where you live, your social security number. You can just say your first name if you want, and then that's pretty much it. Sure. Or you can use an alias if you want. I don't really care. Mm, an alias. I'd have to make something up mm. on the spot, but let's just go with my name is Sean. I grew up in Alaska. And I think that instilled a love of the outdoors in me. And I took that with me all through the rest of college, post-college, into career. And uh, I think a lot of career has been finding ways to make enough money to escape the outdoors. So that's one thing I've always, I've never really met anybody from Alaska other than yourself. So what was kind of your upbringing in regard to, you know, like you step outside? Because I know here... We're in Denver now, right? Or I'm mm-hmm. in Denver. We are in Denver. And I know like in Boulder, you know, during the winter, you see, you know, some cougars walking around, you know, mm-hmm. sniffing around people's properties and stuff like that. Yep. Um, in Alaska, you know, you've got the cougars and everything like that. But then you've also got, you know, potential grizzly here and there. You know? Yeah. Uh, bears, moose, things like that. So I would like in Alaska to, uh, well, here's an analogy. If you've been to a place like, if you've been to a place like uh, Yosemite or, uh, you know, another really big national park with a ton of traffic, everything's fenced and gated and there are signs everywhere and you're supposed to stay on the path. And if you don't, you're going to die and fall into the pool and be roasted alive. Uh, Alaska is like that, but without all the signs and the fences mm. and everything else. Yeah. So <clears throat> it's not uncommon growing up in Anchorage to carry bear spray with you on your daily mm-hmm. run. It's just kind of a normal thing. You bring your water bottle and you also bring your bear spray. Uh, so uh, it was nice growing up there. Uh, it's a lot of outdoor stuff. Mm-hmm. And I had pretty free reign from my parents to take the bike and out the door I go in the morning and mm-hmm. get back before dark. And that was it. That was about all the restrictions. What was the winters like there? Or- Cold. Cold. Dark. <laughs> Although what I uh, what I eventually realized is that if it's cold and dark, it makes you want to be mm-hmm. indoors and cozy with all your friends. Mm-hmm. So the moment it starts getting cold and dark at night, 
you're going to start being as social as you can. You're going to have that fire in the fireplace. You're going to get together with friends. You're going to play some music. Uh, and in the summertime when it's light until, you know, midnight, 1 a.m., uh, it's light, light. So again, you're going to spend lots of time with your friends as soon as it's warm enough to go outside, play in the midnight sun. That's what you're going to do. So uh, for sure, we have a lot of seasonal depression, but uh, how people deal with that, I do think it drives a lot of people to seek company. Mm -hmm. And that's what gets you through. Uh, one of the benefits living that far north in the cold is you get to see the northern lights. Uh, we didn't have the darkest skies. I did grow up in Anchorage. It is a city, but uh, dark enough skies that uh, my mom, you know, she would take my sister and I out and show us the stars. So that was a cool thing about winter is it's five o'clock. The stars are already out. What do you miss about it the most? You know, I honestly really don't miss it that much. There's very little up there for me anymore. Uh, unless you are in some sort of natural resource extraction or protection, there's not a whole lot in Alaska. So it's beautiful. <clears throat> but I think, it, I think it comes to that. It's that argument, you know, what we were talking about before, the ratio between like, you know, yeah, there's, there's a lot of beauty here, but it's kind of like, you know, the connection aspect. Again, everybody, again, Anchorage, I know you said as a city, um, some people might, you know, you might know people more than others, but again, you know, how much can you actually, the diversity of activities, I guess, is kind of the thing. It's like, again, you're in nature and it's beautiful. And if you, if you seek that seclusion, Alaska is probably a really nice, quiet place. But, yes, you know, as far as trying to actually go out and, you know, do things, it's like, man, I could really, you know, I could really use some company doing this kind of thing. You know, if there's something you're potentially interested with someone, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of people end up in Alaska either because they move there for work, so they have to move to Alaska, or they are searching for something in themselves and they need to move to Alaska. They, they run away to Alaska to try to find themselves, and it doesn't always work. Uh, Alaska can be a harsh place in so many ways beyond just environments and animals trying to kill you at every turn. Uh, it can be emotionally challenging when it's dark all the time and people want to stay indoors. There's not a lot going on. Uh, yeah, it can be a challenge. And for me growing up there, I think, I think a lot of us take for granted to some degree, the environment we grew up in. So it's wildly beautiful up there, you know, running in the mountains every day after school. Uh, I know some people would love to have that every day. And there are lots of people in Colorado where we're sitting now who do that every day and who absolutely love it. Maybe they didn't have that growing up. And so that's their daily. They're inspired by it daily. For me, it's what I grew up with. And so even here in Colorado, when I am in the beauty of the mountains, I appreciate it. But because it's so uh, normal to me, because it's so known, it's something that is such a part of my life. I'm like, oh, this feels like home. This feels normal. <laughs> yeah, it was already kind of running through your blood when you arrived here. And like in Alaska, yeah. you know, I think that, um, you know, for there's a there's a thing <clears throat> excuse me where <clears throat> even i'm from you know new hampshire like these winter areas right mm. where you're like shoveling snow you know there's some podcasters i listen to where they say you know people that grow up with all four seasons you know nothing against people that live in warmth but it's like 
cutting your teeth in the mountains kind of breed, it kind of breeds a certain type of person, right? You know that are attracted to that that type of environment. Absolutely. You know, and getting your teeth cut as a as a kid, you know, th- running through the mountains, you know, and, mm-hmm. and fucking grizzly bears are on your doorstep, you know, like, hey man, you know, high fiving them as you're running past, you know, right. stuff like that, you know, <laughs> as you uh, both it, run in opposite directions yeah, from each yeah. other. <laughs> you know, it, it kind of it kind of breeds a certain uh, flavor for life, almost mm-hmm. a different kind. It does. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I do think that a lot of it for me is what inspires me to be in a certain place. And uh, as much as I love Alaska, my parents still live there, you know, uh, it does not inspire me the same way that being in a desert environment does. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's that's why we're here right now talking yeah. is is to talk about some of that. So, uh, yeah, I do feel strongly that it is the places that inspire you, the people that inspire you. And I think that's a large part of what makes a place feel feel like home or feel like a place you want to repeatedly return to. And uh, having grown up there, uh, I feel like Alaska, it's not that I'm talking it down and saying it's not good, but you know, I've been there and it's, it's what you, it's what you know, yeah, you know, it's... and that's the thing is I think that, you know, for other people, you know, one of the conversations we were having about earlier is familiar. I might have butchered this word because I'm from the East coast. Familiar, fam, familiar. It's familiar. I'm trying to say familiar. Yeah. yeah, dude, I can't even say it. I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm English is my first language and it's also my only language. It's not my best language, <laughs> but it's what is familiar you know, to us where basically we want to, um, go back to what is normal, you know, and some people perform very well, you know, living in the same place and staying in that relative area where they like, and that's what they prefer. You know, there's no wrong answer to Mm -hmm. it. It's just that, you know, I don't think I would, me personally, you know, Alaska, if I grew up there, yeah, I'd probably end up trying to expand my horizons. But Mm -hmm. I mean, as far as, as a place to grow up, seems like a great place you know same thing, same, same same thing with new hampshire it's all localized to this area it's very inclusive the outdoor scene is fantastic i mean the ocean is only what less than 45 minutes drive yeah we've got mountains we've got um skiing snowboarding hiking climbing mm-hmm. pretty much everything you can think of you know right and um alaska just kind of seems like a very similar concept in regard to what you can potentially do but again you know when it comes to what it is you prefer or what you want to do, it, it can just, it's like, this is, this is no longer piquing my interest. It's like, again, this is what I'm familiar with. Yes. I grew up with this, you know, I would yep. prefer to be somewhere else. Yep. Yeah. That's a really interesting point. I think a lot of people go to Alaska because they're seeking something more. They're seeking adventure. They're seeking inspiration and they run to Alaska for that sense of something new. But when you're raised in that place, it doesn't matter if it's mm-hmm. the most amazing place in the world to everyone else it's normal to you. And I have seen a lot of my friends who grew up in Anchorage together. We scatter to the four corners of the globe. Mm-hmm. As soon as we graduate high school, we're out. Uh, only a few people I can think of off the top of my head that I went to high school with stayed in Alaska, stayed in Anchorage and made a life there. The rest of us, we did what everyone else does when they go to Alaska. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Go forth and yeah. look for something new and make your way in the world. Because, see, that's what's interesting about, like, I don't know. I, I don't know how I draw the comparison between out here out west. But there was people in Kansas, right, that are farmers or producers, however you, you know, ranchers. Um, 
depending on the success of the farm, you know, you can kind of see where the generation ends where basically they're just like, Hey, don't come back to the farm because there's nothing for you here, you know? And then, like you said, you look in all, you look in the 360 degree direction and all you see is just these fields, right? Mm -hmm. A couple trees in the distance, but you, you see, you see that horizon line, you know, it's basically looking out at the ocean mm -hmm. for however long. And these people are just, you know, they're, it, it's an interesting way I don't want to say way of life, but it kind of is because on the East Coast, right, everything's so densely packed. You have more opportunity to move around between Boston, D.C., up the entire East Coast. Mm -hmm. Coming out West, it's been a little bit different for me because, you know, you go to Wyoming and you hear these stories about these people that are just like, yeah, don't come back. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they, wow. grow, they grow up in a small town and basically they make like $600 a month. You know, these, these cowboys that essentially still exist, you mm -hmm. know, and then their kids grow up and they say, hey, you know, don't. You, you got better opportunities to do other things. Go right. go somewhere else. And it's not that they're forcing it. It's just that I think that they realize that it's it's an attraction, right? Think about that. Right. Think about that. How weird that is, right? Like people in cities now that grow up in these concrete jungles are like, hey, you know, I would like to go out and own a ranch and have all this wide open space and just be just have that quiet mm -hmm. quiet. But mm -hmm. then you have these people that live that life that are that are ranchers, that are farmers. And they're saying, hey, go out, go out where all the chaos is, you know, these concrete jungles, because there's, there's more opportunity. So it's a weird correlation between what people are familiar with and what they're not. Yeah, it makes me wonder if it's not uh, too much of a good thing, right? Because mm -hmm. you can look at that situation, those scenarios and say, well, the grass is always greener. You, you want what you don't have. But it may just be that if you get too much of the thing that you thought you wanted, yeah. then yeah, you need to change. Yeah. And uh, if that's 600 bucks a month on a ranch, you know, maybe that's more than you wanted of, of cowboy yeah. life. So, yeah. uh, so you want that city life instead. Yeah. And again, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's always an interesting story hearing that um, because I have some friends that stayed, you know, and they're doing great. They had opportunities, you know, through their family. They, you know, maybe they got a job here. There's networking, but me, the, the way um, I am is that, you know, I was having a conversation with a friend. I was like, I have a hunger for life, man. Like, I want to, mm -hmm. I want to live in many places. I want to live in yeah. many different places. As I, I want to be in like <clears throat> six or seven different places at once. You know, experiencing like, I want to move to Switzerland. You know, I want to move to New Zealand. You know, I want to basically where all the mountains are. I want right. to move to Nepal. You know, see uh -huh. those, see those monolithic, natural wonders of these things in the distance. You know, mm -hmm. that are just like they instead of that flat horizon. You know, you actually see the, the horizon is actually just these um, spires in the distance that just are competing for airspaces. Yeah, things, you know? and you so, want to see those. Yeah. You want to see what's yeah. in those. You want to yeah. see what the view's like from the yeah. top of those things. Yeah, yeah they're you, inspirational. Yeah. Just looking at them. Yeah, it's and so you wonder, you're like, you know, man, this is like experiencing high elevation. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, am I ascending like to, to right. something? You know, like right. I'm at sea level and now I'm like, all right, I keep getting higher and higher. This is... Mm -hmm. This is interesting, you know, but, um, yeah, it's a, it's a weird twist kind of like how we wear, where and how we end up where mm -hmm. we do, you know, um, anyways, so I want to transition into, um, how we actually met each other. So, um, back in 2018 was like my first trip to Denver. I think it was April. And I was like, this place before the world ended, that is, I was like, this place is pretty fucking rad. Right. And, um, 
I was like, yeah, I could see, I could potentially see myself moving out here. And uh, a mutual friend of ours um, basically invited me to come out and do a trip with you to Utah. And I had never been to Utah before. And we spent mm-hmm. six hours driving. Uh, <laughs> what was it to uh, to Moab? Basically, I got up at four in the morning, uh, left Boston at like zero feet in elevation, and then landed in Denver. And then we had a six hour. I think it was like one p.m. when I landed, or something like that. And then. <laughs> And then we had another six-hour drive to uh, Moab, Utah, which was pretty mm-hmm. cool. Plus that traffic on I-70 West, you know, during the, uh, during what was it? Everybody was going to Breckenridge, which is like a pretty high retail shopping area, you know, that people do. So um, I wanted to kind of talk about how you got into the outdoor scene and um, some things that kind of piqued your interest into it as to why you wanted to pursue that. So. Um, oh, I love that question. Yeah. So for you, your 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 thing was, um, or one of the things that you, one of your main disciplines that you love that I can I can see your face light up. You know, when when we talk about mm-hmm. it, is canyoneering. Absolutely. So can you tell me a little bit about um, how did you first hear about this, and how did you kind of like get into it? Oh man, that is a hell of a question. Yeah. So uh, so growing up in Anchorage. This is, this is a childhood story. Growing up in Anchorage, uh, you know, Sunday, Sunday newspaper, Anchorage Daily News, you know, they had the big full color comic section every Sunday. And as a kid, I would spread that thing out, you know, be looking at it for an hour while my parents are making breakfast. And uh, <clears throat> I remember for a long time, Bill Watterson's Calvin and Hobbes was on the front of the comic section. And so in full color on the comic section, here is Calvin and Hobbes and Spaceman's Biff flying through all these alien landscapes. And the way Bill Watterson drew those strips, he didn't just do a panel at a time. He would, it looked like he was doing watercolor across the entire space he was given to use. And he would draw these landscapes, these alien planetscapes. And I thought they were the wildest looking things I had ever seen. These huge mesas and everything's all red and it's just, just wild looking. And I found out later in life that, uh, that Bill Watterson had actually taken a trip out to Utah and he had seen these landscapes in the desert. And that was his inspiration for these Spaceman's Biff art pieces that he did in his comics. Uh, it almost feels like a disservice to call them comics. They were absolutely one of the most inspirational things for me is to see those landscapes and say, wow, I wish I could be there. I want to be Spaceman flying through that stuff. So <clears throat> fast forwarding to early adulthood and getting to see those in person on college trips and later on with a four-wheeling trip out to the, the deepest parts of the desert, uh, it was really amazing to see that stuff. And fast forward a little bit later on, how I actually ended up entering the, uh, the sport or discipline or pastime of canyoneering, uh, it was amazing to me to be able to play through those spaces, to exist in them and see them and experience them on a much deeper level, much more intimate level than just drive through on the pavement and look. Uh, as far as how I actually got into canyoneering, it was totally accidental. I had done a little bit of climbing, uh, you know, I'd repelled once or twice. Uh, a friend of mine had invited me on a trip to the Grand Canyon and 
said, uh, we have a couple permits. They were given to me. The person who had these permits suggested this route. Uh, it's a route called Royal Arch in the Grand Canyon. And she said, yeah, you figure out the details. I'm going on a trip with my parents for a couple of months. So she bounces off the grid and I'm like, all right, this sounds fun. Let me see what I can get into. Yep. So it turned out there's about a, I don't know, a 20 or 40 foot drop somewhere on this, uh, on this route, this Royal Arch loop. And uh, the park service really talked it up, you know, build an anchor that you can support your life on and you're going to repel and, you know, makes it makes it sound like this big deal like you're going to get down there like james bond and yolo down a rope or something mm -hmm. and <clears throat> i realized i had never done this before and then i realized well i guess i'm gonna learn mm -hmm. so uh so i did a little research online and went to all the climbing magazines online and looked at how to do all of this and there's probably somebody out there right now that's like oh my god you learned how to do all of this stuff just on the interwebs and yeah i did i learned how to mm -hmm. canyoneer from the internet so well i learned how to i learned how to change my brakes on the internet too so i mean exactly yeah some good can, stuff out there do, you just yeah. gotta vet yeah. your information and use YouTube, it well youtube is a great resource that'll save you however many dollars man exactly sure. yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah so so through uh through a couple of climbing magazines and a number of youtube channels and other stuff i i learned how to build anchors and uh, learned how to set up the rope and learned how learned how to repel and this is all coming from a climbing background uh, so my friends and i practiced we ordered some equipment or i guess i should say i ordered some equipment and convinced some of my friends to come out and try this with me so we practiced a fair bit uh, I've had other friends say, how did you get into this? How can I learn to practice? And I, I can honestly say that I probably repelled off my bed frame down the stairs a good dozen or so times while I was figuring this out. Uh, and then took it to a local crag and practiced there. And uh, there was a whole lot of built an anchor off a tree and walked down a slight mm -hmm. hill backward <laughs> just see, to see how it all worked. But see, I think when people get into things, they want to rush into it, you know, mm -hmm. like they see the things that are cool, kind of like mm -hmm. the saying, everybody wants to be a gangster until it comes time to do gangster shit. You know, yes, everybody exactly, just yeah. wants to repel into a canyon immediately, mm -hmm. right? But there's, there's like, there's the receptive aspect in certain, like there's a certain level of cognition that you need to have for this yes, kind of stuff. Absolutely. Where you understand with your climbing background the actual risks associated with canyoneering like mm -hmm. this is a dangerous thing that i have to do so hey with the risk management that comes into play with it hey let's actually take the proper approach and take our time with this rather than just hey let's put on a harness and let's throw the rope down in the canyon and figure it out as we go you know you have right. some there's you know there's are there are courses for canyoneering i, I presume same yes. thing with there are for climbing but again man some of those courses are like I'm trying to, I'm looking at trad one, trad two, mm -hmm. potentially in the fall. It's like $500, man. That's a, that's a, that's right. a, that's a, again, it's like time over time, your own time, whether you're going to invest learning it yourself. And again, you, you're not, you're not attaching your ego to it, right? Like you're receptive mm -hmm. to feedback and all that kind of stuff. Cause again, you just, you want to be safe and you have that risk management aspect to it. But that's kind of cool how you actually like went into it that that approach yeah and i would say the biggest thing the biggest thing about the courses uh they're just leading you to the water mm -hmm. you have to be willing to put in the practice you have to be willing to put in the time to analyze why you're doing what you're doing uh, 
so to uh to cut short that previous story of how i got into canyoneering uh i had learned all of these skills i had, I had purchased a static line a canyoneering static line and some equipment and my friend returned from her trip with her parents and said oh wow that's going to be a hell of a trip that's actually more than i signed up for mm-hmm. so you know we did practice a little bit with uh with my friend and a couple others but ultimately it was a good buddy of mine who said hey i'm willing to try this with you so i purchased a full-length main rope and he and i went out to the moab area did a practice route we must have checked everything three or four times at every drop mm-hmm. and our hearts are racing and of course you know, of course and, as and we and, did and it i think that that's the, yeah i think that that's the that is the actual because if you just yep. went you're just like oh fuck it dude we'll be okay that's not yeah that's not what you you want your heart yep. to be racing yeah any sure. climber can tell you rappelling yeah. is is considered the most dangerous part of it yeah and it's because yeah. there are so many little details in that system that can go wrong mm-hmm. because you are working with a system it's you know you got to check your anchor and you got to check your rope and you got to double check so many things it's arithmetic man in yeah, all reality it's a system it's, and you have to understand it yeah it's like mathematical arithmetic if a single you know decimal is out of place the entire thing can be wrong yep and that's that's how people end up you know, accidents and that's when recoveries happen. And, uh, yeah, it, it really is a difference of, uh, are you willing to drink the water you're being offered in that course or not? Mm-hmm. And, uh, the people that I see who take a course and never do anything else, they at least have that familiarity. And so they can go in with a, with a group of people, with a team that's well-led and they can be a good part of that team. Uh, but the ones who really shine that I want to go with, that I want with my crew, they're the ones that take it away from class and they go practice it for a while mm-hmm. and they could say hey check this out I, I can tie these three knots and i know why i'm going to use them uh, <clears throat> so uh the the continuation of why on uh on that story you know after the first canyoneering trip it's like oh cool we repelled but then you begin to recognize very quickly the more, more canyons you do that uh, repelling is kind of the necessary evil of canyoneering that what you really do is uh, you're climbing sideways it's like bouldering sideways and uh, it's really it's the challenge of problem solving to get across a pothole it's the beauty of where you are it's the shape of the canyon itself it's recognizing that these canyons are shaped by incredibly powerful storms by funneling just this astronomical volume of water down this tiny little space and that is what carves your canyon and uh i want to say it was craig childs he's an author who writes a lot about water and the desert southwest i i think it was one of his books he said something like the water may not be there today but the water always comes and recognizing that the water always comes that you are in that canyon at low tide uh you are it is like you are on the beach at low tide as far out as you can get next to the ocean the water's going to come back and for this brief moment you can see what the water does and how it flows and how it's going to carve this canyon in the future Uh, and so what eventually developed for me was a recognizance of the beauty of these places that we were getting to see something really special in the earth they they almost feel like sacred spaces to me this is where the water comes and we get to see what it looks like uh and uh i would say that that journey of the mind from let's yolo down a rope to let's go see the beauty of the earth that was about 
two or three canyons. <laughs> That's how fast <laughs> yep. that happened. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And, uh, and ultimately we learn all of the rescue skills. We learn the rope skills and techniques. Uh, we learn that because we have to, whereas, uh, I think in the overall canyoneering experience, that is the least part of why most of us go. Because I think that the comparison, you know, listening to you when we've had conversations about this before is, again, the problem-solving aspect of it, right? But you can be... The difference between climbing and canyoneering, there is a difference. I didn't know if you wanted to potentially go into that a little bit, where someone can have a lot of confidence thinking that they've been climbing a vast majority of their time, right? But as far as the distinction between how you approach something in a canyon, how you approach something as climbing. You know, I didn't know if you wanted to talk about some of those differences and similarities. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting thing to get into. I, I have seen and experienced varying degrees of friction between climbers and canyoneers. And uh, I think a lot of it comes down to people thinking they know everything because they know one discipline well and not being willing to put themselves in the place of, I am a beginner, I am in learning mode. Uh, what can I learn from people who have more experience in this new discipline? And uh, <clears throat> when that mindset is in place of, I am a beginner again, uh, I think those are the best people to be with regardless of their background. And so I have seen, I have seen wonderful trips in canyons with climbers and i've had wonderful experiences as someone who primarily canyoneers with climbers at crags uh i think a lot of the friction comes in when someone says why do you repel that way we do it this way our way is easier and from my own perspective i think it's more what you know and are comfortable with and well why would you do it any different uh there are other other details as well that seem minor, like for example, if you're at a crag, most likely you're just going to pull your rope down, standing right at the bottom of your climb. Uh, we do this all the time. Uh, the wall straight up. You're really not going to pull your rope over anything, even close to an edge or a roll off or anything like that. You're probably looking at your rope the whole time. In a sandstone canyon, the that rock is so fragile. And if you stand at the bottom of your drop, there's probably an edge or a roll off and you're about to drag your rope across a very fragile piece of rock. And so standing right at the bottom of your drop, you're going to create a rope groove mm -hmm. instantly. You will create a rope groove. You can actually watch the rock being worn away by your rope. I think and we've actually seen some of those. We've, you know, I actually felt it when I was on that, that last rappel when we did full granary, seeing mm -hmm. those, um, like you were saying, seeing those grooves where people were actually doing the last rappel. I remember I was mm -hmm. halfway through the rappel and the whole rope just just shifts right in there. And then yep. I was like, oh, yeah, it's in the groove. And then yep. I just kind of kept going. And I was like, all right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So so uh, there are little details like that that uh, I think you can be an excellent climber in a climbing environment. And there are like any new skill set or environment there are things to learn uh that'll make it a little bit cleaner overall make mm -hmm. it easier but we want to like you know I, I think getting the gist of it is that obviously we want to preserve you know we don't we want to we want to leave as little um footprint as we can in regard, right because we want to enjoy these areas you mm -hmm. know mm -hmm. yeah 
Yeah, I would say I've seen a lot of people with a climbing background go into a canyon because they know how to repel. And uh, I have definitely experienced scenarios where someone has set up their repel as we might if we're at a crag, double your rope, find the middle double your rope and throw it. And uh, something goes wrong. You didn't actually have the middle or uh, your rope ran one side faster than the other on your rappel device or uh, just the most random things. And uh, that's usually where I see people needing assistance. Uh, they, either, they either need a rope drop to them to fix whatever went wrong or, uh, you know, I've, I've heard of instances where people short rope where the beta for the canyon said you need a 70 meter rope and they bring a 70 meter rope and double it and rappel down and then SAR gets a call because the beta meant take a 70 meter rope and go single strand. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's really, really an unfortunate scenario, but it absolutely has happened. Uh, I think likewise, if you're a canyoneer and you're out on a crag and you say, well, let's, let's repel like a canyoneer does, uh, you might be taking a little bit more time than you really need to, mm -hmm. to set up that repel. So, so yeah, I think they're, I think they're both excellent disciplines and I think every canyoneer should know how to climb well and how to, uh, set up a repel as a climber might and why, um, <clears throat> when someone has a climbing background and they're headed into a canyon, by the same token, I would say, learn what a canyoneer does and why. And then you'll find you have this whole toolbox to pick from. Mm -hmm. And yeah, maybe we're just gonna double the rope on the middle and throw it and down we go. Uh, maybe we're going into water and so we wanna set that rope length and swim off the line. So I, I absolutely don't think that one is better than the other. I think they are There's a skill lot of, sets and, and tools. There's a lot of crossover between the two. Absolutely. You know? But I think that it seems for me that, um, you know, I heard a saying the other day that mastery is an illusion, right? Mm -hmm. That you can't pretend that you're going to know everything, right? Because there's however many different ways to do something, mm -hmm. right? You know, if you want to, <clears throat> essentially, I think, the wisdom to say that you don't know something is actually trying is is the true master right because you can say that you're good at something right but the idea that you're like a master just doesn't i think that the person who views themselves as forever a student is the true master right? yeah where yeah. someone actually says that oh, i've mastered this and i don't have to i don't have any more that to learn. person's gonna get in trouble you know? and that's <laughs> the thing is that like even even in you know certain uh, eastern philosophies where people say that they're a master you know there's they'll still even it's a weird, um, it's, it's just a weird way to think where it's almost as if like it's a self-inflated ego, right? Where someone actually attaches their personal ideas to their own views, I guess, mm -hmm. on how they, how something should be done. And there's no wiggle room for conducting that, right? Again, there's a million different ways to do something, mm -hmm. um, myself included, you know, when I've been out climbing, um, cause I don't have a strong canyoneering background, right? I'm mainly just a sport climber. You know, mm -hmm. you hear me say that all the time. Where I'm like, hey, Sean, you know, I, I need some help with this or, hey, I would need I need help with this. Um, yeah, man, let's go know. play. Yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> let's get like, it. Hey, man, let's go. Let's go tie some knots, you know, and um, <clears throat> you kind of see people that are, again, are receptive to that mm -hmm. where they're like willing to learn versus other people that are kind of set in their ways. And then they might not be so good to bring on a canyoneering trip because again, you're in the canyon. That's one thing too, is also the safety aspect of it. Right. Of like, 
there's that you're in a canyon like right in order to actually potentially get um safety taken care of that you're, you're looking at probably like 12 14 hours probably even right. longer than that mm-hmm. you know and i mean <laughs> even on our last trip last year um when one of our friends went to step you know there was that snake that was there and i was like oh, right man. i was <laughs> right. like oh man you know hearing a rattle for the first time and it was a it was a small little baby rattle get your heart going like, yeah i was like i was like whoo you know but of course you know us being us um you know it's like hey separate yourself from the snake you know everybody's you know i'm sitting there running up to this thing trying to grab a picture of it same thing with chris you know he's trying to run up to, like, grab right. this picture of this damn thing you know right like, hey, maybe we should maybe we should use a little bit more critical thinking skills right. as, as far as this but um yeah there's a there's a distinctive skill set that i think someone needs when they're pursuing something like that right and also mm-hmm. like that's what happens i find with people i climb with mm-hmm. with people i go canyoneering with is like that chemistry factor you know mm-hmm. um, because a lot of the times, you know, I've just basically just stopped climbing with people because um, nothing personal. That's the thing. And I think that is, is tough for some people is mm-hmm. with, with the kind of things that you pursue. And as far as the outdoors is that sometimes when you're doing these extreme things, um, I don't want to say people aren't carrying their weight because there have been days where I'm not. I know I'm not, you know, um, but as far as that risk management goes into play, it's like, Hey man, like you need to, you need to slow down or you need to hurry up. You know, it all depends on right. the, the group and the energy of it, you know? And if you can pick up with yeah. the first five minutes of a conversation with someone where they're just like, I don't know if, I don't know if I would be too good in a canyon with this person, you know, I feel like they would cut the mm-hmm. rope on me or something, you know, like, <laughs> right. you know, something like that. Or they that, may just so. freak out and they're going to yeah. end up being a handful and, yeah. and that's something they need to manage first before you want to take on that potential responsibility with them. Yeah. Yeah. What I, what I wanted to bring up, what you were just talking about, maybe think of this, uh, there's an excellent YouTube channel called Canyons and Crags by a gentleman named Rich Carlson. And I leaned hard on his resources when I was learning a lot of this stuff. He discusses uh, <clears throat> a progression of risk analysis or a progression of, of your approach to canyoneering. And, and this is honestly just a life skill is that you start out with always and never. And always and never keeps you safe for the most part. Uh, it's, it's building in a ton of safety margin for you. If you say, well, always have two pieces, uh, two pieces linking you to your anchor, always have your anchor doubled up, you know, always have whatever it is, it doesn't matter. And you might have a never, like never drop your tether before you do, before you get on repel or, you know, always and never. So you have these hard and fast rules that you adhere to. They may not always be necessary or even appropriate, but for the most part, they have so much safety margin built in that if you adhere to always and never, you're probably going to be okay. And the, the next step is, uh, is assessing when something else might be appropriate. So what tools do you have in your toolbox? Instead of always and never, you say, well, we have three options. Which one which one is going to be the best thing for us or which one works, just do that. And the final approach is fit for task. So maybe you can tie a very simple anchor that you know works and it's gonna take you 10 seconds versus making something that adheres to serene or earnest and is gonna cost you a ton of webbing that you might need later in the canyon. Uh, So you eventually recognize what is fit for task.
and uh, I remember having I remember having some discussions and eventually arguments with friends over something as simple as when do you need a helmet uh, on a hiking route, a scramble route, a fourteen er route. You know, we got these fourteen ers in Colorado. Everybody wants to go climb all of them. And there are absolutely some routes where you want a helmet because you've got a risk of rock fall. You could fall and hit your head. Uh, I know people who have recovered from TBIs climbing 14ers because they got a, you know, microwave oven sized rock dropped on their head. And fortunately they're alive because their helmet took it. So we have these discussions. When do you need a helmet? Mm -hmm. And I think it's very easy to fall into the always and never mindset because always and never is more safe. And what's wrong with more safety? Well, ideally nothing, but I think it's critical to assess when your margin of safety is so great that you can back off that margin a little bit and do something that is faster. And a lot of times speed is something that you need in a canyon. You might be racing the weather. You might be racing something as simple as Maybe someone is out of water. Maybe the whole team is out of water. Maybe you're hungry. Maybe it's getting dark. Whatever these other factors may be, uh, you don't want to be in that canyon for eight hours, 10 hours. I think the mountaineering rule is if you've been moving for eight hours, you should reassess, rest, mm -hmm. eat something because your, your brain is just not going to work well after that. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, so there's another, there's another potential difference uh, between what I often see in the gym to crag progression of always and never. Uh, I would say in a canyoneering environment, we try to make the evolution as fast as possible from always and never to what is fit for task and why. And the why is really the important part. Because I think uh, when you're talking about the actual safety margin, you know, um, I used to do a lot of kayaking mm -hmm. and, you know, one of the things was that, you know, you're going down a river and some people, you know, you get, you get the life, the life preserver right there. Right. And, um, I was in Michigan actually, um, it was kind of funny. We were actually training and, uh, all the PA people, all the public affairs people were like, Hey, we're going kayaking for the day, you know, and my unit, they're all like, you know, sleep deprived and all sorts of shit. And I was like, I'm detached from you guys. I'm gonna go kayaking today. You know, I'm kind of shoving that in their face a little bit, but, um, they give you the life preserver, right? When you're in, when you're going down this river and, um, about half of them strap that life preserver in the back underneath all the webbing right there. Yeah. Right. I kept mine on because I didn't know the conditions of the river. Mm -hmm. right? What could happen potentially to me if, you know, we all know that it's like whatever class zero rapids, right. But there's certain obstacles where someone, that had never gone kayaking, strapped that life preserver in the back of their kayak. And they said, oh, I don't need that, mm. right? Because mm -hmm. they were like, oh, I've, I've, I've gone swimming, however, in a, in a still body of water. So they know how to swim. Problem is, is that when you're moving and you, the river goes left or right, and you're supposed to go right, but this person goes left mm -hmm. and goes down these class one, class two rapids, of course, it's gonna converge at a certain point. Right. But she got stuck behind a tree. Ooh. And again, fast moving water with all these rocks underneath her with no, no she's caught in a strainer. So when mm -hmm. she's caught, she doesn't have her life preserver on. She can get sucked underneath mm -hmm. and then that's the end of it. Yep. And so that's why 
having that margin of safety where I had my life preserver on, even though I'm wearing like just shorts, whatever, you know, it wasn't actually, I, I think I only packed jeans that day, but I don't, I didn't care whatever. I was just, just kayaking in jeans, but, um, you know, we had to go over to the left, the left side of the river there while everybody else went to the right. Mm-hmm. And here we are, you know, paddling backwards as hard as we can, you know, using our board to try and pull her free because she's lodged up against this tree on the side. And she can, she's, she's screaming, thinking that she's going to flip. Nothing right. crazy. Just a quick kind of like, hey, you have to keep calm and collected. Mm-hmm. But that person that strapped that life preserver to the back because they thought that they could swim. Again, it's not an ego thing. That was a learning experience for right. some, for some yep. people. And even myself, you know, um, what I've learned through the years um, when I go on these adventures <laughs> is um, I have, I've, I've learned, again, this is, this is something personally that I'm going to tell you right now is that I've had trouble sleeping mm-hmm. um, based on my experiences overseas mm-hmm. in Iraq and Afghanistan and things like that. And, um, you know, when I go on trips or I do something, you know, a slight movement makes me kind of on edge, mm-hmm. right? Because I'm so, I'm so that that's just what I'm accustomed to. Right. Um, you know, when I would sleep during the day, right? When I'm on night shift, we would, we switched halfway through deployment. I'm on night shift. And so I'm trying to sleep during the day, right? Mm-hmm. But all I hear is just things in the background going off. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I've got my eyes closed and I'm trying to sleep, but I hear these things coming off, going off in the distance. And I know that, like, should I get up? Should I do this? Or I'm, I'm asking myself if I should do something. Right. And um, when it comes to actually sleeping in a new area, I find that I'm almost a liability because I know that I have to acclimate to that environment mm-hmm. sometimes when I sleep. So when we go on these trips... You know, I've, I've, I've said that um, to a few friends where I'm like, I don't know if, you know, I should get into mountaineering where we're actually going and doing Denali, going and doing Everest or any of these kind of mm-hmm. trips because I just feel that me personally, with my background, I have trouble sleeping and I feel almost as, as if I'm a liability to people because mm. I'm not I'm not a pure mind, right? My, my decision-making process is a little skewed. It's a little bit delayed, right? Like you can, you still have, if it's, if it's one night of no sleep, your decision-making skills are a little bit just delayed, right? Like you can still function. You have that fatigue, that pounding headache in the back of your head, whether you're dehydrated or whatever. Your your decision-making skills are just a little bit delayed. Through the second night of, of almost two to three hours of sleep, um, that's where things get a little bit more um, harder to actually kind of... Because um, you're paying too much attention to actually being asleep. Mm-hmm. And you're not really paying attention to your nutrition. You're not really paying attention right. to much of your actual your mind that would what your mind needs to make Mm -hmm. those sharp decision-making skills and that's what i've learned doing some of the trips that we've done and again it's nothing personal um that's just for me um i've been really trying to like expose myself to different things so i can actually not be a liability to the people i go out with is that Mm -hmm. you know just based on these stimuli that happen again i know that i'm in a safe environment right but it's that it's that it's that autonomic response that i have to that direct stimuli, such as like, you know, something moving or the wind blowing or a new tent or something. Again, it's just, it's a new area. It's a new Mm. environment. So I I, I go back to these places where I feel that I'm I'm elsewhere, right? Mm -hmm. I'm almost as if I'm daydreaming or something. Um, And so that's one thing that I wanted to talk to you about today is again, it's nothing personal, but sometimes I just feel that um, I could potentially be a liability based on certain things. And um, I've been trying to kind of work through. And I think that I've been getting better at it, mm-hmm. um, and that's what I'm trying to establish out here in Colorado mm-hmm. is to kind of start 
easing my way into like doing small backpacking trips where, you know, I, I, I get accustomed to it again, you know, because mm-hmm. um, sleeping outside in, in the military is a little bit different. You've got a crowd of dudes that right. basically you feel that safety net. Right. Right. But now when you're here, you know, just some of the things that um, logically you put through your you put through your mind are a little bit um, less. Um, they're not as. Um, I'm trying to, I don't really know um, what I'm trying to say, but basically, I think you get what I mean. Is that I just yeah, like, like with the lack of sleep, I that's so. that I, I almost feel as if I'm a liability, right? So when getting mm-hmm. back into that risk management aspect, I'm like, okay, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to potentially hurt someone because you know, I'm like, how deep do I want to get into mountaineering? How deep do I want to get into this, right? So that's mm-hmm. why, like for me, you know, doing a a trad route, even getting into like big wall climbing or something like that. I'm like, I don't think I, I, I find the idea of it fascinating, mm-hmm. but the problem is, is that I think we sleep up on a portal ledge, right? Like right. I would be fine. And I know that if I didn't have the experiences I did, I'd probably take to it pretty well. Um, mm-hmm. but based on new environment, new area, you know, just those things that those indicators, those, those, um, those precognitive things kind of yeah. manifest themselves inside my mind when you're, when you feel vulnerable in a right. state when you're trying to go to sleep. So that's kind of like one of the things that um, I've noticed that when I go canyoneering is that that's how I feel, mm-hmm. you know, until like, it's weird because after day two or day three, fatigue's a beautiful thing. <laughs> and I just fucking pass out for like a really long time. Uh-huh. Um, and then after that, dude, I just, I feel, I feel at home again. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, I remember we did uh, our last trip. Um, I felt great that day, dude. And I just was like, I was like, Hey guys, like, <laughs> right. What's going on? Right. You know, we're doing these slot canyons. And I was like, dude, it's like, my friends are saying to me, like, dude, what the hell happened to your Osprey backpack? I was like, slot canyons in Utah. And it's almost like <laughs> I wear it as like a badge of honor now. Uh-huh. Cause I'm just like, yeah, slot canyons in Utah. I'm like, Osprey's great because they'll, they'll replace this thing for free, you know? So, but it was like, I, I kind of relish, I cherish those, those moments, but, you know, taking a step back and looking at it, you know, that's one thing that, um, as far as risk management goes with me is, um, I feel that a certain degree of like, I need to start again, getting back more into obviously because of fucking COVID, mm-hmm. right. But I need to start doing more backpacking trips just to kind of ease my way back into actually doing all that. Mm-hmm. those outdoor activities is just because that's one thing I've been really challenged with, man, is just trying to actually like get the rest because it's like, I can't really turn it off mm-hmm. when, you know, you're doing these things. And, and I feel really um, almost responsible for the group mm-hmm. in a sense where like, if I do something wrong, right. Then everybody else is going to have to, for sure. Yeah. You know, and being in a Canyon with someone or going climbing or doing anything like that, it's, you know, you see our group of people that we bring, you know, one person feels that they're, that they're, that they're kind of like, one of our friends feels that they're, um, the group is, uh, that they're kind of the weak link in the group. And all of a sudden, like you start to see it in their face. They're like, I shouldn't be doing, and then we're all just like reassuring them. Like, dude, it's cool. Like it's, it's fine. Mm -hmm. You know, but those are the kind of people you want to go canyoneering with. Right. It's just that we have to, everybody has to work through their thing. Yeah. You know, the, the big buzzword here, I feel like for, for the last, what, five years or something, ever since Brene Brown broke onto the scene is vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And, 
if you can express all of that to the people you're going with and say, yeah, I didn't sleep well last night or my, my headspace is not in the right place because I'm thinking about a relationship or there's this big project looming and my boss is on my case last week and I can't get it out of my head. Uh, being able to express that to your team so that they know they know to just pick you up a little bit more or keep an eye on you or ask you what's going on or mm-hmm. you know, maybe you're walking on the approach and that's a great time to get all this stuff out of your system. And uh, on the flip side, if we think, oh, well, I'm super strong and I can just keep this to myself, maybe three hours later, it's still in your mind and now you are a liability. And uh, those moments when I've seen friends in canyons say, all right, I'm in a tough spot. I don't know what I'm doing. You know, maybe you you see the tears start up uh, or you see that thousand yard stare in somebody's eyes. They're just looking helpless. They're like, what do I do? I've seen this on, in men and women. It doesn't matter who it is. These are people that I know are otherwise incredibly strong in every aspect of their life, and they're just having a moment. And when they experience that and they can say, guys, I'm having a moment. I just need a minute. Don't talk to me for a minute. I'll figure it out on my own. Or I need a little bit of support. Let me know what to do. Uh, that's a pretty big deal. And that ultimately, that makes your whole group safer because the rest of your group says, oh yeah, we got you. Of course Mm -hmm. we got you. Here, let's do it this way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a wonderful thing. Uh, Do you mind if we take a quick break? Sure. All right. All right, dude. Back. Here we go. Yeah, so. so, um, Before the break, before the break, we were uh, about to talk about coffee and eggs, dude. Coffee and eggs. Coffee and eggs, coffee man. And eggs, that was dude. that was yeah. some good breakfast. Yeah, some coffee was, and eggs, coffee some vegetables. And eggs, that was solid. But then it runs right through, dude. <laughs> like I've been telling my buddy, tell that like, coffee. Yeah, dude. I was like, dude, French press, man. Black rifle coffee, French press, arrow press. Dude, that's the way to go, man. You know it's what? Just an evolution from here on out. That's that's kind of funny. Uh, that's this is a segue into exactly what we're talking about. Uh, so risk management and planning ahead. So uh, I don't know whether I learned this from something maybe like Freedom of the Hills or if it was a Knowles course, but at some point someone impressed upon me that risk management starts when you wake up in the morning. Mm-hmm. And realistically, it starts even before then. It starts when you go to bed. Uh, that uh, you always want to stack the odds in your favor. And it's little things like did you leave the clothes that you're going to wear in your backpack outside the tent where they're going to be cold as fuck in the morning? Or did you pack them into your sleeping bag where they're going to be warm? How do you want to wake up in the morning? Are your contacts, mm-hmm. if you're going to put in contacts, are they with you and warm? Or are they half frozen and slushy in the pocket of your tent? Yep. You know, how are you preparing yourself when you get up in the morning? And uh, coffee, coffee is one of those things, of those man. Things, if you man. If you wait until five minutes before you're about to walk out with a harness on and all your winter gear and on a rope team, man, if you wait five minutes before you're going to leave to drink that coffee, bro, three hours in or a half an hour in, you're going to be going up that rope team and you're like, guys, I need to dig a hole. And your whole rope team is going to say, come on, man. Why didn't you plan for this an hour ago? So, so kind of a funny segue there, but you know, it's it's 100% a potential life and death issue. And there's a lot of things that we don't think about, like, did you get enough sleep? Did you eat enough breakfast? That four hours down the line on your trip, whether you are going up a, a multi-pitch route or down a canyon or up a mountain, 
uh, that's going to affect your decision making. It's mm -hmm. going to affect your interactions with the rest of your group. Uh, I have uh, totally walked into a canyon with my friends and I've got relationship stuff on my mind. And, you know, like we were talking about vulnerability before, it's like you got to let that out and let your friends know what you're dealing with and mm -hmm. maybe step back and instead of instead of me walking out in front and saying, yeah, I'll handle that anchor and tie those knots and et cetera. You know, I'm saying, hey, guys, I'm I got a lot on my mind right now and I'm dealing with some shit. And uh, one of them takes care of all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I just let it spin down and they take care of me. And an hour later, I'm good to go again. Yeah. And uh, I think that applies to all kinds of little stuff. Like uh, one of the things that was impressed upon me in a Knowles course. And this is just the woofer course. You know, I highly recommend mm -hmm. anybody going out go outdoors, go take that course. That's it's one thing weeks. I'm actually looking at potentially it's 500 taking. bucks. Go mm -hmm. do it. Uh, especially, the, especially out here. And yep. after seeing, um, mm -hmm. we drove the million dollar highway out in Western Colorado. Mm -hmm. Super sketch that. Right. They say, right. they say it's, it's a one, road, of, one of the most it's dangerous, one of the most dangerous roads in America. It's actually, it has less fatalities. As long as you pay attention to, yep. as long as you're paying attention, man, you know, you're not fucking sitting <clears> there <throat> swiping right or left on Tinder, you know, fucking mm -hmm. checking your Instagram status or anything like yep. that. Pay attention to the fucking, yep. the, the, the speed limit. Watch where you're going, you should, you, you, you should be okay, yep. you know? And, uh, yeah, I was, uh, I was blown away at that, that terrain, mm -hmm. right? The San Juans where you go all the way down, down in your all the way to, um, Silverton, uh, mm -hmm. excuse me, Silverton. Mm -hmm. That was a, uh, that was an interesting thing to see that because there's people backcountry skiing back there, right? Mm -hmm. When we had actually, when, uh, me and a mutual friend of ours, when I, when I drove that with her, um, there was three skiers. There was a group of nine mm. in the backcountry, and there was an avalanche that had happened. Mm. And unfortunately, three of them had passed away, Ooh. and the other six were good because we saw a lot of the crews mm. out on the road, and we thought that we were like, "Oh, hey, they're just they're conducting training, or something along those lines. Right? Uh -huh. They must be doing something because it was right. it was in January, uh, early February when it had happened." Mm. And um, yeah, three three skiers unfortunately lost their lives in wow. an avalanche, and you could see the benefit of again, you know, that risk management of how much are you going to invest in your outdoor, mm -hmm. um, how much you would you be willing to invest in your education and right. your experience and gaining that knowledge, right? Because knowledge is a, is a pretty big thing mm -hmm. as far as um, you know your skill set and. Uh, you know, even, but even then going back to that, you can take as many courses as you want and invest all this into risk management. It still won't prevent certain things from happening. Yeah, that's, you know? absolutely and that's, right. that's the unfortunate aspect of, um, you know, natural disasters or whatever that happens is mm -hmm. that we are essentially, we're playing in nature's backyard and nature still is. It's unpredictable. You know, yeah, it's, exactly. It's only predictable to a certain extent mm -hmm. and all the risk management you can do is it is not, uh, it is not going to prevent everything from happening. Mm -hmm. You're only taking what steps you can to try to prevent the things you know about from mm -hmm. happening. And uh, that does, I think this does bring up a good point for, for my own experience in canyons. I have drawn a lot on avalanche resources, avalanche education of all things, not because we deal with avalanches in canyons, but because we deal with people in canyons. And uh, one of the risk management strategies in the backcountry, if you are in avalanche terrain, is communicate with your team. 
communicate with your friends. Uh, they're your crew, they're your team, they're your brothers and sisters out there. Uh, you're keeping each other safe. And the team dynamics you have in avalanche terrain where one person has very high risk tolerance and another person has very low risk tolerance, you need to hear from both those people. And uh, a lot of times, statistically speaking, it's the women in your group that have lower risk tolerance and quieter voices, and they are less likely to speak up when there's a bunch of guys in the group. And man, I know, put us guys around a bunch of girls and we are going to start showing off and doing the dumbest shit mm -hmm. yeah. and recognizing that ahead of time before you walk into a canyon before you get into avalanche terrain recognizing these really just super basic risk factors and knowing that you can mitigate them by saying hey you've been quiet this whole trip what do you think about this situation we're about to get into and beyond that recognizing that you know, you can always turn around and go get a beer. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and you I've, can always I've turn had around. buddies snow machine way into the backcountry, go after that big objective, and they dig a pit, and they're like, "Hell nah, this yeah. is dumb." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I have I have walked out toward canyons and looked at an approaching storm system, and my friends and I kind of look at each other and we're like, "You guys comfortable with this?" <laughs> like, yeah, no, yeah. this is a stupid yeah, idea. Yeah, yeah. Hour later, it's pouring rain on you, and you're like, "All right, yeah, we made a good decision that day." Yeah. But uh, yeah, all that risk mitigation stuff, man, it, it starts the moment you wake up. And it was one of these, it was one of the Knowles instructors who I think told me that, uh, that uh, even something as simple as taking care of the dishes after breakfast, if you made dishes, if you're not like me and eating feral in the wilderness, uh, just taking care of the dishes will save you some time later on. And if you left dirty dishes in camp and an animal gets to them, if you left dirty dishes in camp and I got to wash them where you say, ah, I'm not going to bother washing that. I'll just eat off of them because it's dinner time. Maybe you get sick mm -hmm. and the next day you're doing your thing and four hours in you're sick. You and the, who knows what that means. Yep. And now you're going to back you up. Yeah. And because so. being into a Canyon, when you're in a Canyon, you're <clears throat> depending on, um, which canyon there's only one it's like climbing right there's, there's only it, one way it, to go it, yeah depending de depending on which route you take or how you're how you're attacking mm -hmm. it um your terrain or the objective yeah it's actually almost easier or a better alternative rather than thinking that you can turn around coming up was a lot easier than going down mm -hmm. and it's kind of the same thing and it seems in canyons is that the only way once you're down in yeah, the only it's, way it's to actually down. get yeah. out is to is to keep going. Keep and going, that's, absolutely. And that's, that's again one of those. Yep. How does that person fare in regard to you know whether they're tired, hungry? Mm -hmm. How do they deal with certain types of things in regard to their social dynamics with people? Mm -hmm. How they're impacting the other group? You know, um, if they're moving fast, if they're stressed or anything like that. And so for me, my thing that I, I think I have a pretty decent. Sorry, dude. I ate the I ate the other donut there. Did you eat Did you eat that other donut? There? I totally crushed that other oh, donut. Oh, hell yeah! Oh, sweet. Um, one of the things for me was um, the social uh, dynamic, as far as like a self awareness aspect. Right? Mm -hmm. It's like I'm constantly doing kind of like an internal after action mm -hmm. after something happens and looking at where I was in the military. Right? Where right. you're like, hey, am I pulling my weight? Am I doing all these kind of things? The reason why I could sleep. And that environment is because I'm in it. Mm -hmm. I'm in the environment and that's what's normal to me. Yeah. Right. Whereas here, when you go in a group, 
with someone. You're not in the environment the entire time, mm-hmm. right? You're making a conscious, almost volunteering decision to go with a group of people. So once you get into that environment, you while you've stepped in it before, you're not in it at all times. So it's not mm-hmm. normal, right. right? So that's why when you're here now, you have to have that self-assessment, that self-awareness to be like, okay, you know, how tired can I be? How much essentially stimuli can I take until you get to that fatigue point where you're again, fatigue is a beautiful thing. And then you kind of start realizing like, okay, you know, I can, I can level out after maybe two or three days and, you know, get some decent sleep. But, um, you can definitely see your, your decision-making abilities being a little lackluster when for me, at least that, that aspect for me, um, going on trips, because back in New Hampshire, a lot of the things that we did were just show up to the crag, Mm-hmm. on a Saturday, right, at 4 or 5 a.m. because it's humid as shit during the summer, right? Mm-hmm. Show up to the crag 4 or 5, we're out of there by 10. Right. You know, and that's what that's what I got, that's what I was used to, mm-hmm. right? But my history with being in the military, being with a bunch of, like, you, you know, dudes, yeah. with, a, with a bunch of dudes that are, you know, hyper-masculine type A personalities. We're going to go do some dumb dude shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we're going to love every and, minute and, of yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> and so some of, them, some of them have that self-awareness to see when they're actually... Um, <laughs> Some have the ability to actually see when they're being, their judgment is being impaired, right? Based on lack mm-hmm. of sleep, nutrition, stressed out, all sorts of things, right? And that drives the group dynamic. Mm-hmm. And then you can also see other guys that don't have that at all. Yeah. And they have, um, they just don't give a shit. Yep. And then it brings the rest <laughs> of the group down with them because they're moving too fast. Yeah. Or they just, um, they haven't really experienced that that level of stress yeah and you're 10 that, hours in and that guy's losing his shit yeah the, rest of the team's got to pick up the slack yeah and so that's why me like for me personally i can deal with the high amount of stress i think i find pretty pretty i, I can be pretty relaxed as far as like you know um, hey like we're gonna move it's like just chill out man like we're good you know mm-hmm. and even when we were in ure um it was funny because we had to get up early that morning right to go uh catch some top rope anchors because right. yeah because we were like <laughs> we were, cluster yeah because they, they open up at uh so the year a uh it's what they call the year a ice festival it happens every january uh and i've been mentioning this to a lot of my friends i was actually kind of angry that it was canceled because of covid but i'm i'm glad that they actually kept the competition going so that they could they could attend it virtually and the athletes could come out and compete mm-hmm. and stuff like that but absolutely even when you said to me dude you know i it was the first time i was actually wearing crampons and, uh, oh dude, I was having a tough time. I was just so fucking angry too, because they kept coming <laughs> loose and I knew I had the rope in my pack and I was like, fuck dude, like Sean's going to be angry at me because I'm, oh, I'm falling no. behind. And then like, I come up to you and I'm just like, what the fuck Sean? You're like, bro, you just <laughs> like, just completely calmed me down. You're like, dude, it is just the way you had your voice. You were like, dude, it's all good, man dude, don't worry about it. Like we've got three top ropes, dude. Maziar did his thing. Like we've got three <laughs> top ropes, dude. He's like, it is all good. Yeah, Maz is on and that then, shit, man. Yeah, he dude. was out and there then, claiming and then anchors. I, it was like 7.30 or something. Yeah. yeah. And so then I just was like, I was like, wow, that just alleviated a lot of my anger just because like you reassured me just within like a 30 second thing where you're like, dude, it's all good, man. Like, dude, cause I'm in my head, I'm like, fuck dude, they're waiting on me. I'm not, 
we're not going to get the top rope. It's going to be all my fault. And so we fucking crampons. And that's just what's going through my mind, right? Uh-huh. As that group yeah, dynamic. Yeah, yourself up. Yeah. And so I'm like, what the fuck, dude? So then I just, dude, you're good, man. Like, it's all good, man. Like, don't worry about it. And you just, that reassurance was, I was like, oh, okay. Well, that yep. alleviates a lot of my shit. Fucking yep. put on my harness, rappel down. All right, here we go. Yep. <laughs> you know? And then that was, um, that's pretty much it, man. You know, it, it all depends on the psychology of the group and... Um, there's a lot of things that that when it goes into that risk management aspect of it can mm-hmm. can really um, impact. I don't want to say a failure of a group because I don't think that a trip can really be as long as ev- if everybody gets out safe. I would say that that's a successful trip. You know. Yep. Um, but Sometimes as, it's a learning experience. Yeah, yeah. If and if everybody got out and they're all in one piece and nobody's hurt. Yeah, and that, that was, was that's also like a leadership principle too. As far as like you see in the military, mm-hmm. is um, I see some officers that get to a certain rank and they deal with all these stressors, right? And I'm like, man, I, I thought that this person would have been able to deal with this a lot better. And you see it affects them top down, mm-hmm. right? And then it goes down. But the problem is, is that someone said to me, they said, well, don't you think that that person should have been making, they, why aren't they making decent decisions? I'm like, well, when, from a leadership perspective, I was like, the thing is, is that they haven't had much command time mm-hmm. because you want to know what makes a good, a good, a good leader is someone, who makes, is someone who makes mistakes through experience. Yep. I was like, Nope, no, yeah. you know, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. You know, thank you, <clears throat> right. Mike Tyson. But um, that's the thing is that that person, when they usually have a command at first, they learn, you know, the mistakes that they make, right? Mm-hmm. Which, piss, let's say it pisses off 20, 30 people. I'd rather have them piss off 20 to 30 people because of a decision that they made rather than them get to a certain position where they're in charge of 200 to 300 people and right. they make that decision and then it pisses off 200, 300 people and they learn that way way more. So, that element of what actually is leadership is a really tough um, mm-hmm. is a really tough thing because even within a group, you know, a decision is having a decision is better than no decision. When everybody is all trying to figure out what's going on, right? Mm-hmm. Like having one solid decision is better than there being no decision at all. Right. And then the mm-hmm. thing is, is when you make that decision, you open yourself up to scrutiny. People can sit there and question that decision. Was this the right course of action? Because again stepping up into that into that role is mm-hmm. kind of like um it's almost some people are reluctant in certain regards to leadership oh absolutely um, some people are um more naturally prone to think that they are uh mm-hmm. bred to lead but in reality right they're attaching too much of their personal ego Watch to it out. yeah they're attaching too much of their personal ego to it and i think with a proper group dynamic is that having an equal ratio between people that are willing to be receptive to certain decisions and also that risk management aspect mm-hmm. really goes into again the how the entire experience of actually going out mm-hmm. within nature really impacts how yeah. that how that can play out it really does you know i i like that you brought up uh people who are reluctant to lead and people who believe that they were meant to lead because those are both potentially dangerous situations uh I, I was definitely the former of those where I would go on these trips. I would invite all my friends and I would say, well, I mean, I'm not really leading. I'm not guiding. You know, I can tie some knots, but it's ultimately up to you to get down the rope. And we're all peers and partners, et cetera, et cetera. And realistically, that was a bunch of bullshit. I was leading whether I wanted to acknowledge that or not. I was in a leadership role. And... It took me about a season to recognize that and begin stepping into that role 
and not as a not as a well i'm leading i should be the leader mm-hmm. and lead stuff no that's not really it it's more uh well i do a lot of social dancing and leading in a social dance if you are dancing the leader's role in a social dance one of the most critical skills you have is to be able to listen to your partner mm-hmm. and <clears throat> by the same token to be a good leader in the outdoors in business it doesn't matter how you are leading your most critical skill is to be able to listen to the people who are looking to you for leadership. You're, you're not leading them around. They are saying, hey, we trust you to guide us. Mm-hmm. You are a navigator. You are a guide. You are a leader. Uh, being able to listen, being able to acknowledge that in this moment you are being looked to to make a good decision. And the decision you make may rest on the opinions or skills of the people in your group. Uh, I think that's far more important than trying to be too humble and saying, I'm not your leader. We're all Mm -hmm. peers or saying, I am a leader. We will all do this. Because they don't want that decision to rest on their shoulders, essentially. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's what I was avoiding. I didn't want to, I didn't want Mm -hmm. that responsibility. Yeah. And, uh, and then there's the, there's the flip side of that where someone wants the prestige of leadership but they aren't necessarily willing to take on the listening skills of being an effective leader. Uh, I do think in a Canyon environment at any given moment, you might be leading and in another moment you might be supporting someone who's leading Mm -hmm. and recognizing when you are in either of those roles and acting accordingly. I think that's a really critical skill. Mm -hmm. I think that's an important life skill. You know, we're not always leading. Mm -hmm. You might think we're a leader, but that's a mindset you drop into one minute and maybe the next minute you're going to kick back because somebody else has got this. Someone else is back gonna take, yeah, someone yeah. else is going to take the helm for a quick second. Yeah, and absolutely. The, the thing is, is I was out hiking, I think last month with um, a mutual friend of ours and, you know, she kind of um, made me think about something where, you know, it was just kind of like an unwritten rule, right? When I was back in New Hampshire, I knew those, I knew some of the trails so well that I knew I could map out, you know, Hey, we're going to be here. I don't even, you know, you don't even need a map and compass, you know, that's mm-hmm. a, that's a bad, that's a kind of a, a bad mentality to have in the first place. But, um, you know, I know the trails relatively well, so I'd, I'd bring a couple friends up and, you know, they're like, Hey, where are we going? My way. Well, yeah. We got about another half mile. You know, we take a left over there at that trail and, and we're good, you know, because I had done the trail so many times, right. Mm-hmm. They, they didn't invest any of their time to learn the map or where we were going mm-hmm. now there's a, there's a problem with that, right? Mm-hmm. Which actually I learned last month because someone brought this to my attention, which was actually, I'm just going to say her name, Becky was the one who actually brought it to my attention, right? Mm-hmm. So the way in which she approaches me, right? I love the way she does it because she doesn't, again, she doesn't scrutinize, but she approaches it from a very logical standpoint where, you know, we're on the trail and again, back East, I just take my friends through the trail. Now, if something happens to me, what are they going to do, right? Do they know where to go? <laughs> right. Not mm-hmm. saying that anything would happen, but do they know where to go? Exactly. Right? And so we're out here, we're doing um, Bear Mountain. And it was just a few, it was like three words. She asked me, she goes, um, she's got her, her phone picked up. She, what trail are we on? And I, I immediately knew, dude, I just was like, oh, fuck. I was like, oh, shit, you got me. Mm-hmm. Because I'm investing too much of my time to entrust in her to navigate where we're going, right? Mm-hmm. I'm using her as the conduit to basically just take on that. She, she basically, the role right here is not 50-50. Mm-hmm. It's 100% her, 
as yeah. how she's actually taking on where we're navigating, right? Because again, I have the trust in her, all this trust in one individual. Right. But the problem is, is that in order to actually mitigate those circumstances, you have to kind of spread load that type of responsibility. Mm-hmm. That's why yeah. in the military, right, you've got, you've got, you know, hierarchies of different people and they know the job, you know, of the <clears throat> person two, two ranks above them or whatever, right? Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of crossover with that leadership style, right? So, you know, hey, what trail are we on? And I was like, right. I have no idea. And <laughs> right. again, this is just, it's because I feel safe, right? I'm in an mm-hmm. environment where I'm, dude, we parked the car, you know, and there's people walking past us on the trail. But think about that, you know, something so small is just, just say, hey, what, what trail are we on? And you're just like, you start getting those gears turning and you think to yourself for a second, you're like, I invested too much of my, I don't want to say I invested too much of my trust in them. I, I, I trust in her ability, right? Mm-hmm. But it's more of a psychological standpoint where it's like, oh man, I didn't, I, I didn't really, I didn't check where we were going beforehand. We just started the trail. Mm-hmm. If something happened to her, God forbid. Right. You know, again, we're in a, we're we're kind of like in a controlled environment because Denver, you know, I could throw right. a stone and we're right there in Boulder. Yeah. Right. But you think about that, right? As far as like, as a as a self reflection on my own part, you know, oh wow, maybe I should have checked to see where the trail is beforehand and, and all these kind of things. And so as far as like, you know, um, seeing different leadership styles within just a small group of people, you know, back in New Hampshire, you know, I led an entire um, hike up this easy 4,000 footer, right? It was the easy, it's like the easiest 4,000 footer in New Hampshire. And all these people were, um, you know, I said to them, I was like, hey guys, you should probably bring some micro spikes because New Hampshire is predictable. Mm-hmm. And out here, it's kind of, weather pattern is kind of unpredictable. I right. can tell you what temperature it is right now if I pull up my phone, because again, the East Coast, mm-hmm. it's a little bit more predictable as far as weather conditions, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, hey, you're gonna need micro spikes. Oh, I don't need that shit. I was like, I'm telling you, man, you're gonna need, you're right. gonna need, you're gonna need micro spikes. They're not receptive to that uh-huh. because they've never been. So like, I'm taking on this leadership role, but dealing with military personnel, half the time they, with leadership, right? There's all mm-hmm. those different dynamics. I didn't want to take on the role of seeing as if I was attaching my ego to it, right? Mm-hmm. Are they receptive to the information that I'm giving them, mm-hmm. right? So there's all these weird things that happen in regard to dynamics between groups and nature and all totally. sorts of stuff. And so when we finally come to the first incline, I had no problem with the girls at all. I was just, hey, you know, how much are these, Josh? And like $30, $40. They're a great investment. They'll last you two, three years. Like, oh, yeah, that seems cool. They go out, they buy the spikes, fucking come to the first incline, walking pet. And so these, these some of these guys wearing um, wearing military hiking boots are not designed. They're designed for an all-purpose thing, but sometimes something that's all-purpose doesn't mean that it's designed specifically every for exactly every purpose. So they were sliding a little bit, you know, using trees, trying to go up this, mm-hmm. this steep incline. But um, again, where do we draw the line between like, is it on me? Is it on them? And that's one of those interesting dynamics that happens with certain groups, you know? Yeah, and for sure in a higher risk environment, you don't want to say, well, I'm going to let that person have a learning experience today. It's like, no, bro, you're going to go get some micro spikes and they're going to be in your pack. Yeah, yep. And we're going to take our packs apart before this trip and we're going to double check that everybody's got exactly what they Mm -hmm. need and then we'll go. Yep, and so that's (laughs) why I'm like, you'll learn. I was like, you you know, you can, again, you can get away. You can get away with, you can get away without wearing spikes, but you know, you guys are, uh, 
you guys are going to see the benefits. So then, of course, you know, we get up, yeah. we get up there and we're like, yeah, I probably should have bought those spikes. Like, yeah, man, I, uh, I'm not trying to be that guy, but that's mm-hmm. an experience, you know, which is what, you know, what Becky did to me with, you know, just being out here. You know, she's like, Josh, again, we're not on the East Coast. We're out here in yeah. Colorado. Things change on a dime. You know, yeah. even even yesterday, dude, you know, we were talking about out in Salina. There's fucking weather out here is a lot more extreme compared to the East Coast. The East Coast, yeah, we get nor'easters, but it's predictable. There's patterns as far as what is going to happen and what is what isn't. Out here, different environment as far yeah. as weather and as far as conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I'd like to transition into some of your canyoneering trips. Ooh. So you want to hear about the good ones or the, the yeah, learning experiences? So, so yeah. So getting into the, getting into the act, <laughs> yeah, group dynamics and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, what I would like to get into is what have actually been some of your favorite canyoneering trips as far as like landscape wise, scenery wise, just what, what kind of comes to mind for you when you actually, when you kind of go back and you look at some of your memorable ones? Oh man, that's, that is a wild question. Uh, you know, I would say, I would say Zion in general is probably one of the major crown jewels of canyoneering in the American Southwest. Uh, it's really hard to describe. It feels like you're on a different planet. You're getting to play in the water. You are in these secret sacred feeling places in the earth uh, and you're getting to play through you're getting to play you're getting to exist in these spaces and you're getting to share it with your friends uh, i would say all of my trips to zion have been uh, crown jewels in my own canyoneering experience just the beauty that you will see out there uh, some of the other standouts uh it's more like those learning experiences and then you have the aftermath of the learning experience mm-hmm. uh, i'm very fortunate that none of my learning experiences have resulted in a phone call to sar uh, but for sure the the aftermath of the learning experience those are some of the most valuable and uh, type two fun, enjoyable, extreme moments. type two fun. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, we're, yeah. we're uh, we're hiking, we're hiking up a creek. This is like a knee deep, shin deep to knee deep creek. We're hiking up this creek for three miles on the exit, and and we are literally steering our poor exhausted friend by the elbows <laughs> so that she doesn't fall over and crash in the water. Uh, <clears throat> or another one where everybody had all these little stressors. Uh, you know, like I was saying earlier, stack the odds in your favor. Well, if you forget to do that, then maybe you exit the canyon mm-hmm. and you realize you've got a three to four hour hike and two to 3,000 feet of vertical. And you realize that you forgot to refill your water while you were in the water course. Uh, or your buddies recognize they don't trust the other leader on that trip to tie knots. And, uh, they're all looking to you and they realize that if you for some reason fell and hit your head, they wouldn't know what to do. And so uh, I think some of my most cherished moments were the aftermath of those events when uh, it just made my heart swell to, to hear my buddies saying this and to see them take on that responsibility and say, I'm going to go learn all this stuff so that we can be more of a team. Uh, 
or uh, let's see, or someone just say, yeah, you know, I, I realized on this trip that I can be really stubborn and not listen to people. And that resulted in a really challenging, really difficult, risky situation where somebody could have got really badly hurt. And to see those, those personal realizations, those big, deep, deep-seated, life-changing personal realizations in my friends. And then, you know, a week later, a month later, a year down the road, they are a, an even better person than the last time we went on a trip. Mm-hmm. I love those moments. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. I learned a lot about myself. My friends have learned a lot about themselves. And uh, even though the learning experience, you know, we're talking 14, 16 hour days, 18 hour yeah. days, because you made so many little mistakes, it all stacked up. Nobody got hurt, but boy, are you tired. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, the Again, man, fatigue, those, fatigue is a beautiful thing in yep, some regard. Yeah. The aftermath of those experiences have, uh, have resulted in so much personal growth in, in I and my friends. Uh, yeah, beyond that, you know, just the wonder of coming around a turn and seeing something you have never seen before and could not have imagined. Uh, I remember coming through a, coming through a notable Canyon. Uh, it was in fact, the second Canyon trip that I had ever been on. Uh, my buddy who signed up to do this with me, uh, you know, we're super new at this and we, we kind of misread the beta and we're new at everything and somehow didn't get hurt. And, you know, we, uh, we get to the bottom of a rappel, we come around a corner, we're staring at another rappel and we realize that we haven't been gauging the distance of the drops and correlating that with the beta that we had. We had just been counting rappels and at least three of the two or three of the rappels we had done were supposed to have been down climbs. We had been counting rappels and, uh, we got to the bottom of a rappel and we are in this spectacular circular formation where the water has swirled and cut down like a drill head, uh, you know, probably two or 300 feet. And it's this beautiful fin and a swirl formation. And uh, to be in such an alien looking beautiful place and to feel so lost, <laughs> like, uh-oh, did we just sign up for a 30 mile day by... Mm-hmm going yeah. one rappel too far beyond the exit we were supposed to take. Uh, <laughs> it's a little, that's a little unnerving right there. It's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that was that was quite an experience, but to be in this place that we were so, so totally unprepared to see <coughs> and to recognize that we were in fact safe, we did have a backup plan, we had plenty of rope, and even if we did sign up for a 30 mile day, we could do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, <coughs> sorry. And to uh, to then be able to take in the beauty of this place we were in and see how the water moved through that space and see how it felt to be able to see that on the ground like we were in person all around us. Boy, that was just absolutely amazing when that feeling of dread settled and turned into, uh, I guess, security or, or at least, uh, you know, calm waters that yes, we were capable and yes, we could do it. 
uh, that regardless of what lay ahead, even if we had signed up for a full long day, that we knew we could do it. You know what's um it made that made that space even better. You know what's crazy to me is um so Utah in general was one of the last areas people besides the Mormons, that is, people tried to bypass Utah mm-hmm. and that entire area as fast as they could. Mm-hmm. Because they considered almost the inhospitality the inhospital again, getting back to familiarity, the it was such an inhospital in in god damn it, dude. You get what I'm saying? It was mm-hmm. such an it was such a austere environment that people didn't really seek it out in the eighteen hundreds. Right. Even even during the fifteen hundreds, sixteen hundreds. Yep. Think about, you know, the old Spanish trail mm-hmm. where a lot of these people navigated these landscapes to come across some of these places to think about their state of mind mm-hmm. when they're viewing these areas, right? Back in the 1800s, again, people bypassed that area. Very, They were trying to because, of again, it was very inhospitable. Yeah. So um, to get to California, because that was the area that they sought, you right. know, um, that's how Death Valley got its name, you know, because people got lost in California mm-hmm. or they got lost in Nevada, um, Utah, and all these areas because, again, group group dynamics and them switching uh what is it? Half half of the group went this way, half of the group went this way, you know, and then finally after a few months they're like, Goodbye, Death Valley. You know, right. this girl ends up saying that to these areas. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it was back in the nineteen thirties was when they finally actually started mapping out a lot of the the surveying these areas mm-hmm. in regard to um the canyonlands, arches, mm-hmm. and you find one of the most pristine and beautiful areas in the entire world is actually right in our backyard in Utah. Right. Right. And yep. before the invention, before social media, you think about like what people did back there that have never really experienced it. And how do you put that into words, right? When you're standing in the center of a canyon and you just see all these natural, beautiful, <clears throat> swirling patterns that have never really been seen other than you know the the local natives or you know the local population and i remember we were um me and a friend uh we went to bryce canyon Mm -hmm. and right and so she's passed out in the uh passenger seat and all of a sudden you know she gets up she just took a quick nap she's like want to go to capitol reef i was like sure let's go sure let's go to capitol (laughs) reef you know so you know er, made a, a quick um deviation in our our um destination we ended up going to capitol reef national park for the day mm-hmm. and um you know we go down into this canyon and uh, it's called capitol gorge mm-hmm. beautiful place man absolutely gorgeous and there's these inscriptions on the wall from 1888 mm-hmm. right and i was reading up on it because we thought that these names were like there's cameras when you're walking through capitol gorge i don't know if you've been there um but it was it's there's these cameras set up and all and all these like names so we thought people were actually defacing <laughs> The walls at first, and we're like, these fucking assholes. Like, why the hell are they writing their names in the rock? This is these fuck-. motherfuckers then, in eighteen seventy six. How fuck? dare they? <laughs> yeah, these sons of bitches. You know, and then and then we sit there. We 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 take a closer look. We're like, oh shit. Like, no, hang on. These are actual mm-hmm. dates from when people traveled through here, and the earliest date that they have is actually eighteen eighty eight. And there was no the thing that's interesting. Have at it, dude. And the thing that's interesting is um, taking there was dude. Go for it. The thing that's interesting about that case was that back in 1888, there was no wagon train that had actually gone through that area. It was just a group of people, they think, like just 
just maybe two or three people trying to be miners going through this, this, this like area that's like, how the fuck do people come through here? You know, mm-hmm. and you think about where you stand or where they stood and there's petroglyphs on these walls, you mm-hmm. know, where these people inscribe their names. And so they would stand on top of their wagon trains. And then what they would do is they would write the inscription mm-hmm. of, or they would write their name in the, in the rock. Right. But Here's the interesting part, how you say that the water flows through these canyons and mm-hmm. creates these patterns. Dude, these fucking inscriptions are like 20 feet high. Yeah. And so you think how much water has actually came through that area and mm-hmm. washed away all of that sediment, right? Yep. Think about how much of that ground has actually came down. So yep. over the course of what, 120 years or so, 140 years? Yeah, it's already it's, five it's, to 10 yeah, feet. it's already dropped five to 10 feet. That is insane mm-hmm. to me to think about that these people stood on their wagon trains and like you're like how the hell did they end up writing their name up that high you know mm-hmm. like they there's no pitons or anything like that it's no they just basically stood on top of their wagon trains mm-hmm. and they just wrote their inscription so you're actually looking up at history and to wow. think about you know when they're going through the canyon to have that experience when you're like man this is what a crazy area mm-hmm. you know Utah is a beautiful place man and it I, I it kind of holds like a special place in my heart in regard to the 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 vastness and diversity of the landscape you know there's like what like six seven national parks there you know all within like a pretty a pretty decent amount of time or pretty decent amount of time not not too not too heavy it's a uh, close area yeah Yeah. you can go from you can go from mountains and the great salt lake down to desert in Mm -hmm. you know a few hours yeah you can be in one of the one of the darkest skies in the United States, you can be down there in a matter of hours. Yeah, and yeah. one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about too is that obviously one of the unfortunate aspects, it's like, yeah, what we're talking about right now is like there's no secret to it. You know, mm-hmm. everybody knows it's, there's national parks there. You know, these areas yeah. are very beautiful in their own right. Mm-hmm. Um, I was leaving National Park, or I was leaving Rocky Mountain National Park last weekend because you know, one of my friends says, you know, man, you need to get the hell out of Rocky Mountain National Park. I'm like, well, dude, I've never had a national park this close to me before, you know. In New Hampshire, the closest one we have is Acadia, which is like six hours away. I've never had one that close. So, of course, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm going to take advantage of, you know, advantage of it a little bit that much to to go experience it at least, right? But the amount of traffic and activity in the area after 9 a.m., dude, there was a line of people yep. there just through this one entrance at like, what time do we get done? We got done at about maybe noon, mm-hmm. one o'clock. Man, the amount of people that are interested in the outdoors right now, it was just that line was backed up all the way for like two, three miles. And I'm like, damn, man, you know, what's where do we draw the line between, you know, we want people to enjoy these areas, but also realizing the frailty of like, these landscapes at the same time because right. we don't want to we don't <clears throat> loving our national parks to death you know especially with covid mm-hmm. you know these people go out and dude remember that whole monolith thing that happened oh yeah, yeah the utah totally. monolith where mm-hmm. people were going out and they were leaving trash and they were trying mm-hmm. to do all this whole thing and um it was just there was no facilities people right. were just going out and trashing these areas right. you know driving all over the yeah, the, the the soil and and not really paying much attention you know, to to the to to the preservation and conservation of certain aspects of you know outdoor recreation. So there's uh, there's something that would happen to websites back in the day. We had a term for this. It was called getting slash dotted. 
uh, there's this there's this online forum slash dot and occasionally you know like reddit like reddit is now occasionally something would pop up on slash dot and everybody would say oh i need to go to that website right now and see what's going on that website their server would just be overflowed with traffic and it would shut down it would just it would say nope we're done we can't handle this traffic mm -hmm. and they would just end up offline for a few days and we've seen the same thing happen in some of the national parks in particular utah after they did their big five campaign uh or with instagram in particular things like horseshoe bend uh people see that they want their own version of that photo there are so many other places that are like horseshoe bend uh, i can think of i don't know probably four or five ten off the top of my head that are going to be just as beautiful you'll get a wonderful iconic photo but Horseshoe Bend, that's the one people, they've heard that name. It's like Antelope Canyon. Uh, a moment ago when you said, what's your favorite, what's your favorite canyon uh, or your favorite area? The first thing that popped into my mind was, oh no, if I say the name of a canyon, everybody's going to go there and now it's going to be full of diapers or some nonsense. Mm -hmm. So. Yep. Uh, masks and fucking whatever whatever which is which yep. is what happened with uh with a couple of places i think it was outside magazine or outdoor magazine they published an article a number of years ago on the front front page or front cover it said something like the top 10 secret swimming holes in the united states and boy they weren't secret anymore and mm -hmm. you know two weeks later they're all full of diapers mm -hmm. so so yeah there's definitely uh some reluctance to give a name to one of your favorite places mm -hmm. because now everyone's going to go there they've they've heard of it it's on the map there might be a hundred other places like it that people could go but they're going to hit that one because they know the name uh we do fixate on that it's, someone says oh a place name well if you didn't give it a name maybe a hundred people would go there but as soon as you give it a name and it goes up on the ground man there's gonna be a million people there it was kind of the joke kind of the going joke, like an inside joke between me and you is like, yeah, we're in Milwaukee right now. You know, look at these crazy canyons. We're in, yep. we're in Michigan. And I'm like, wow, man, I didn't know Milwaukee had such beautiful canyons. Yeah, that's exactly you know? it. Every, uh, yep. every canyon, you know, yep. you may as well tag that as aisle 12 in Walmart and Topeka mm -hmm. or something like that. Yeah. And it's not so much that we're saying you can't know where it is. It's secret. It's more like be aware that that effect will happen that if you give it a name and you put it out there that everyone's going to swarm to that place and try to get the same photo or they'll just go to that place because that's the only one they know mm -hmm. and i'm happy to take people through some of these beautiful places but i hope that they would want to there's a reluctance to how to yeah. treat it well mm -hmm. i want them to treat it with the same love and respect and care that i do well, we saw that as a, yeah. just just a small example. Again, going back to the monolith thing, mm -hmm. no one knows where that came from. That spread like wildfire. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody's like aliens, and the government's out to get you, and all this kind of stuff. You know, and the story behind that before it got removed, that's a whole another that's a whole another story. Um, but just within the first week or two of it actually being discovered, um, I haven't. I haven't read any recent articles about that or who they figured out where it came from or whatever, what have you. I don't know. The last time I heard about it was when they actually removed it. But mm. you can kind of see the small precursor to it, right? 
just what they were doing to the landscape, right? Mm-hmm. As far as, mm-hmm. again, there's no facilities, there's no, there's no consideration for the environment because everybody wants to, I think social media has a, has a, a part to play in it, right? Mm-hmm. A place to blame because everybody yep. wants to attach their ego to, to that type of thing, right? And me as a photographer, mm-hmm. well, you know, I, I, I think, I think that me as a photographer personally, I do enjoy capturing a photo in my own respective way. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, is that I also know when to put it down and when to step away from it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think I see it a little bit differently than that. I think that we all want to have that same experience. Mm-hmm. We want to all experience that sense of wonder and discovery for ourselves or whatever experience was created there. We want to share that. We want to have that too. And for something like Horseshoe Bend, for every photo I see on social media of Horseshoe Bend that I'm like, that's so basic. I also realized that there's somebody that wanted to see that in person and all they wanted to do was jump up in the air with their feet up and hold their hands up high. And it is bringing them so much joy in Mm -hmm. that moment to be in that place in person Mm -hmm. and see it. And oh my God, I love that because now they see why it's worth protecting. And, uh, the, sorry, I just lost my train of thought here. Uh, there was a, another story I was going to bring up. There was this, this phone booth in the Mojave desert. It's just called the Mojave phone booth. It was taken out long ago, but, uh, uh, it experienced a similar effect where, it's just a phone booth in the Mojave and you could make calls and you could receive calls like any other phone booth, but because it was in the middle of nowhere, eventually, you know, it started gaining a little traction as an experience to go there and see if the phone was going to ring and talk to whoever was on the other end of the line or to make a phone call to your buddies and say, yeah, I'm in the Mojave desert. And it turned into a phenomenon, kind of like the, uh, the Utah monolith. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this was taken out a long time ago, but you know, people still go visit that spot and I don't think it was because everyone wanted to show that they had been there. It was because they wanted to experience being mm-hmm. there. They wanted to experience what it was about to, to connect with other people through that medium. And I, I think that a lot of what we see on social media, when somebody posts that photo, they're offering a connection. I like to tell my friends that if I'm sending them a photo, it's because I wish they were with us. Uh, I'm not saying, look at the thing that I did, be proud of me. I'm saying, bro, look at this. This yeah. is awesome. Get your ass out here. We want yeah. you with us. Uh, and it is that human connection, that sense of share this with me. I think that is, that is the primary driver in all of these things that I do, especially the desert, especially canyoneering when you go out with a group of your friends to do this stuff the landscape is there it's pretty i can acknowledge that it's beautiful you know i I can also go to a museum and there's a ton of beautiful art uh add three of my best friends and this is a whole different world of experience yeah yeah yeah, i wouldn't bother going i've been on solo trips and it's not as much fun yeah bring three of your best friends with you and that's a life changing. You can experience. all completely argue with each other, mm-hmm. but I mean, even if that's the case, where people, you know, they're they're again, you know, 
there are some people that I don't talk to anymore because of, you know, I don't want to get into it, but reasons. Um, but I mean, I still remember those experiences. I don't personally, you know, I don't hate them on a level. I just, I, I don't really want to get into it, but it's just, I don't hate them, you know, and, and part of me feels kind of bad that we had, I had to kind of cut ties and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we had, we had some fun times, but it enriches the experience that much more, you know, because standing in front of Devil's Tower by myself, you know, the first time, mm-hmm. you know, uh, standing at Mount Rushmore in the Badlands doing some hikes by myself, it just, you have a lot of time for reflection. And so some people have that, you know, where they go and they, they can have that self-reflection in nature and they seek that solitude. And there's a lot of self-discovery that happens with it. But with that self-discovery, there's a, there's, there's also a, there's also that a lot can, can go wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Where they, they don't learn to actually really appreciate these places because again, they're by themselves. But I think that having someone there enriches the experience that much more, you know, and it drives that, that ability to really cherish these kind of places. Um, and of course, you know, people get sick of each other when they're, that's just a natural thing. You know, when I'm spending seven months with a bunch of dudes overseas, you know, for, you know, seven months, you know, and I, and we don't even say anything, dude. It's just like, we just do this. We walk down, we, we, we walk out into the breezeway. We look at each other. We're like, we just nod our heads. We're like, huh. And he's like, huh. And then we go and we work out and we don't say a fucking word to each other, but we're just sitting there spotting each other, working out. And we like three hours goes by without us saying a single thing to each other, but we're just working out. And then when we get done, we're like, lunch it's like yeah lunch and then we just go and because we've said everything we need to say for mm-hmm. for whatever you know and so that's just but the thing is is that that's just kind of you know that's part of that part of that experience and mm-hmm. i think that um you know as far as people trying to experience these places right to leave their mark um you know i, I used to have a very animus i used to have some animus about people that were posting stuff on social media and i like how you brought that up to a good point is that certain people try to go out and experience these places. I had a friend, um, there's a handicapped parking spot in Rumney. Mm-hmm. I had a friend of me, he's like, why the fuck is that handicapped parking spot there? He's like, there's there's not gonna be anybody that fucking comes up here that's handicapped, that's bullshit. They shouldn't fucking park there. So one day, um, me and my friend show up to Rumney and there's this climber who wanted his family to actually see him send this route. And uh, so they parked in the handicapped parking spot and so they 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 kind of like assisted this guy to go up to watch his son mm-hmm. actually do his first ascent of this route nice. and it was like That's a 513 awesome. 514 something and his mm-hmm. father was obviously he was active in in his early days right mm-hmm. his younger days but he really wanted to be there to see his son give mm-hmm. attempt at this and so i think that like having his father see him really pushed him that much more to mm. actually send that's the route solid. That's and awesome. so like that handicapped parking spot where that's fucking bullshit who the hell's <laughs> gonna come up here but then also you have the people that you know let's say you know they go to horseshoe bend right you see that person snapping that photo like fuck that person you know but then you hear they're like well my mother's got cancer right now mm-hmm. and she really wanted to be here with me so i took this for her yep. and I sent it to her in order to actually experience it, right? Mm-hmm. Back in the day, same thing at Capitol Gorge, man. You know, these people mm-hmm. back in 1888, you know, man, this place is gorgeous, man. We gotta, we don't have, they're gonna have iPhones in the future, you know, that's what they're gonna call them. <laughs> oh yeah, man, that's crazy, you know? They're like, maybe we should leave our mark here somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. So then they, they put their name in the wall because they feel that this place is worthy 
and beautiful in yeah. their own right, as, as hot or cold as it might have been. Mm. And they leave their name in that. But it's just, you know, the human element to experience certain things. There's like a hunger with it, right? And mm -hmm. I think Utah is one of those special, The de not just Utah, but the desert in general mm -hmm. has a lot of spirituality to it, you know? Yeah, it and um, that's why it's different. Like the mountains are there, right? But I think having that, that discovery of that ratio between like what, um, again, we want to preserve these places mm -hmm. and we want to appreciate them. Um, you know, let having a, if someone's going to, if someone takes a photo, you know, of wherever with their iPhone and that's going to leave a lot less of a footprint than, you know, someone scratching their name into a wall, that's mm -hmm. fine, you know, have at it. And there's just different stories like that, you know, where you hear about someone suffering from this or someone <coughs> suffering from that. But again, you know, um, it's just trying to, it's trying to find that that balance between, you know, hearing these different stories and people's motivations. Again, it's just the experience, man. You know, they yeah, want to have it absolutely. themselves. Yeah, I think there's there's something to that as well, uh, leaving your mark versus making sure that you don't leave a mark so that others can have the same experience, that mm -hmm. uh, the dose makes the poison, right? So if you drink a little heavy metal in your water, it's not going to kill you if it's a particle or two. But mm -hmm. if you drink the whole nuclear waste facility, you're probably going to, you know, probably make it last long. Chernobyl there, so, you know? <laughs> So, you know, if it's the uh, 1700s, 1800s, whatever, you scratch your name in the rock, you're probably one of three people that did that out of, you know, several thousand that came through there. Whereas if we all do that today, it's like that uh, that bridge in what, France or Europe that had all the locks on it. Mm -hmm. You know, you love somebody and you put a lock on there. They had to go through and cut all the locks because it was going to take the bridge out because they yep. got now they added several thousand pounds of steel to this bridge. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's so, not designed. Yeah. So, uh, you know, just like that, uh, when we go through a canyon or if we go to Horseshoe Bend, if we all write our name on the rock and a million other people do it, you're not going to have the same experience as if you go through that canyon and you ghost it. Now the next person that comes through there, them and their friends going through that canyon with absolutely nothing in it, they're going to feel like this is a journey of discovery. They are seeing this for the first time. You know, there's no other trace of humanity in there. And that person at, at Horseshoe Bend jumping up in the air and putting their hands in the air, there may be a thousand people around them. But in that photo, in that moment, it is just them and they are experiencing this for the first time. And then that's fucking beautiful. Mm -hmm. I love that. You yeah. Know? yeah. Like I want everybody to have that experience. Absolutely. Cause I mean, even going through the Canyon for the first time, you know, um, it's kind of hard to actually like, here's a weird thing about like to be in the moment, right? Like with photography, right? I love it. Some of the best, some of the best things I love about photography is actually, um, when I, don't have my camera actually because mm -hmm. I'm so concentrated on like taking a photo right and like mm -hmm. doing certain things and experiencing what it is that's right in front of me um but there are days when I'm just like you know what man like I've been behind this thing so much you know hey I just want to I don't want to take any photos today you know because I want I want to be I want I want to I want to yeah I want to experience this for myself you mm -hmm. know and then not to share it with anybody other than just to experience it the way I want to experience it, you know, right. whether I share it or not, you know, that's a, that's a, making that decision is pretty, um, yeah, it's a really interesting thing. So, mm -hmm. but I, I, I want people to, you know, have and share, have their own experiences and do that kind of stuff. But, mm -hmm. um, yeah. So dude, let's segue into, um, 
just one last kind of in conclusion type yeah, thing. So, sure. dude, what's you have any goals or what's next for you? <laughs> what's next? Ooh, ooh. There are, you know, with with respect to canyoneering, there are a few goals. You know, some of the big technical routes where you've got to have three or four very competent friends with you, and you got to problem solve the whole way through. Uh, there are a few on the list there. Um, <clears throat> but you know, a lot of this is really, the goal is go outside with really good people and see something really beautiful. And I think, uh, to some degree, yeah, have goals, but don't forget why you were there in the first place. And so honestly, the goal is get as many of my friends out and enjoy this stuff mm -hmm. as I can. Uh, and if we run the same canyons that I've that I've done before, that's okay because I'm getting to share that with my friends. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, you know, there's some mountain goals as well, and some of those are personal. You know, finish my 14ers. I've only got six of them left. Uh, some stratovolcanoes, you know, Pacific Northwest, some mm -hmm. big mountains, yep. glaciated peaks, and things like that. Uh, yeah, but I think that a lot of these goals revolve around the experience that I share with friends. And so, yeah, I want to hit those personal goals. But as far as canyon goals, things like that, uh, that's more of an experience to share with people. And I think that is the primary goal at this point. And if we take on something really awesome, you know, these, these uh, 4B type canyons that you have to backpack into, uh, yeah, I'm down for that 100%. But, you know, just having my buddies out there on a road trip for uh, for a full day and scramble through a canyon, get some photos. Some coffee. Yeah, coffee. have a little coffee, have yep. a beer in the wilderness, yep. that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, that means the world to me. Do some ball sack so, photos as usual. Yeah, exactly. Get some get some nutscapes. Get some really <laughs> nice nutscapes out there. Cool, uh -huh. cool. Yeah, man. It's really about the people. Because mm -hmm. for me, yeah, it's very, um, very similar as uh, counting the mountains I did. And the, the 4,000 footers in New Hampshire, there's 48, there's 48, mm. 4,000 footers and um, just completely unplanned, actually, mm. just going out with friends. This person wants to hike, this person, I've done like 31 mm. out of the 48 and that was completely not intentional by any means. I'm just like, I started counting them and I was like, I've done this one, this one, this one, this one. And I'm just like, holy shit, I'm like, I've done a lot more 4,000 footers than I had actually had anticipated. But the uh -huh. ultimate goal is that I don't, I don't um, hunt for the actual summit. Mm -hmm. I just like being outside, man. You yeah. know, and if I do have to do the same hike every day for however much, you know, being stuck in an office environment, you know, where you're staring at a computer screen and you're trying to figure out what day it is, you know, mm -hmm. and you're daydreaming to kind of ground yourself in that you know, through hiking and through climbing or whatever your discipline is, you know, uh -huh. I think is a, a pretty core component of someone's identity and also right. like sanity. It really and is. And that's like to have those experiences, it makes life that much more um, enriching, you know, uh -huh. but with that, you know, we have to just, you know, learn the actual balance between, you know, preservation and conservation of the areas and making positive decisions that we have, um, you know, our, our children will be able to experience it and all that kind of, um, thing. Cause again, I want, I want, I want, I love seeing people, man, when they light up, seeing those experiences and, mm -hmm. you know, they're like, man, these, look at these peaks here, dude. You know, yeah. These views, you know, it's just, it, you, you, cause you, cause I think that we were once there, you know, mm -hmm. when we, it was all brand new to us. When we first mm -hmm. experienced it, we're like, man, 
telling you. It's like, yep. you can't really put it into words, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is a big deal. I also realize in saying that, that one of the biggest deals to me is, uh, I want to head out to the wilderness and show my friends how strong they can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Well, any dude, I didn't know if you had any closing thoughts as far as, um, not really, Anything? man. The journey continues. Cool. Well, dude, we fucking crush these donuts, dude. Yeah, we do. Now I got to go do like 50,000 burpees. Those little fuckers are addictive. I haven't had a donut and yeah, it's been at least a year. I feel like I could eat like six more. Like, yep. Maybe we should go. Maybe we should go get like six more donuts. But Heavy back squats. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> All right, dude. All right. Well, hey, dude, thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. Absolutely, man.